courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. I'm Dr. Laura Faris, the Chief Operating Officer of New York Presbyterian. New York Presbyterian is a comprehensive healthcare delivery system with 10 hospitals and more than 40,000 employees in the New York metro area. Keep your calm. You have a right to be there. You're well trained. You know your stuff. Take that deep breath and push forward. So I do think it's about having confidence but also, when appropriate, asking for help. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Dr. Laura Foris is one of the most powerful women in healthcare. As Chief Operating Officer at New York Presbyterian, she explains how more women can excel in the fields of science and medicine. So, Laura, you were a waitress when you were younger. What did you learn from that experience? I learned how hard it is to work and to work standing on your feet and having to do manual labor. And I was so clear what a difficult job something like that is and so clear on how privileged that I might be to have a job that would be something like being a doctor and being able to work in different kind of field as opposed to having to wait tables every day. You had no doctors in your family, so how did you figure out you want to be a doctor? Well, I had something that was so wonderful for me. I had these incredible parents. I, I still have my dad alive. But from the time I was a little girl, my parents always said to me, you can do anything that you want to do. You just have to work hard. And you have to stick to it. So from the time I was a young kid, like a lot of people, I said, oh, I want to be a doctor. And I didn't even really know what that meant, except that it would be a chance to help people. You're an orthopedic surgery resident when you were pregnant with twins. How did you do it? Well, um, like all women, um, I took that upon myself to say, I'm going to have a family. And I didn't know I was going to have twins. It was a, a really tough time. I was working very long hours, but I had an extremely supportive husband and wonderful peers that I worked with. You know, orthopedics at that time, and now I'm going back 30 years, there weren't a lot of women. There still aren't a lot of women, so I was unusual at that time. And then to go in and have, I think I was the first woman in my program to have children. So look, you do what you have to do. And I was blessed with twins who themselves are now well into their 20s. And I'd say, just like every other woman, you do what you have to do and you look for help wherever you can get it. What's your advice for other women who have intense jobs who are also trying to be mothers? Dealing with that energy level, right? I mean, that's a big part of it. Well, part of it is actually talking to other women and having this sense of, you know, what are the tips that you have? What do you know? I was, again, very fortunate. I always had wonderful help. And that was critical because I did have to, my, my children were babies when I went back to work. They were just about six weeks old. And I needed to go back to work. I was in the middle of my training, and I certainly was committed to my career. So it was really important that I have great help. 
I had a great family who also provided some of that. But I'd say throughout my career, one of the things that I was very clear on was that if I was going to have a family and I was going to have a very intense job, I needed to surround myself with other people who would be supportive. And I, I have always done that. Some women feel that if they ask for help, it makes them less of a mother or less of a business person. What do you say to them? Well, I say exactly the opposite. That, and that's why you got to talk about it so that other people realize that it's not easy to do. I mean, one of the reasons that I tend to talk a lot about my family and always talked about having kids and being a mom and and uh, having a, an intense job was because I think it is important that you tell people it's not as easy as it looks. Look, when you, when you look at someone and you see that she seems to have it all together, you don't realize that that morning the kids were sick or something else was going on or something at work was a real challenge. And so I always try to say to people, look, it may look like it's all together, but that's not what, real, what life is really like. And I can see when I say something like that, I can see, particularly young moms, I can see that they just sort of relax because if you don't talk about that, you think you're the only person who has any of those struggles. You had breast cancer in your 30s. What would you tell us about that? Oh, look, that, was a, that was a really tough time. I was a doctor. I discovered um, myself. I um, was doing a breast exam, which every woman should be doing on herself, and I discovered a lump. And I had this sense that something was wrong. My mother had breast cancer as well, so it wasn't a complete shock to me. But yet I thought, you know, I'm different. I'm a doctor. I'm invincible. It turned out not to be uh, invincible like anyone. Anyone can get sick. And so I went through what was a tough period of time. I had a lot of surgery and chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Again, I am so fortunate because I've always been able to surround myself with wonderful people, both my family but also my work colleagues who were very supportive. But I'll tell you, the thing that I took away from all of that was how hard it is to be a patient and in a way that made me a much better doctor, a much better hospital executive, because I had been through that experience. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but I know that that gave me a different perspective. And I've heard the same thing from many other doctors who themselves have had a significant illness. What advice do you have for women who are facing a serious illness? Well, the first thing is you need to get the right help. So make sure that you get yourself to a doctor that you have confidence in. And of course you want someone who's got great skills and you can find out about that by asking people, by, by looking up credentials and all of that. But it is also important that it's a doctor who will listen to you. This is true for anyone. You really want someone who's gonna hear what you have to say for each of us, how we react to our own bodies to our own illness, it's really important that it's someone who can connect with you. There's lots of medical literature that says when a doctor and a patient are able to communicate well, the care is just better. What do you say to women who are, say, under 40 and say, there's no way I'm ever going to get breast cancer? Well, unfortunately, uh, it's not common. It's much more common after 40. But it can happen, and that's why you really need to be thinking about your own body. For every, for every woman, actually, for every woman or man, having some sense 
of the control you have over your own health is really important. And so that's why I was sharing that I was doing what, what one should, what every woman should be doing, which was your own breast exam. And that's how I picked up that lump. There's a lot that you should know about your own body, your own health. You're in a lot of control around that, but, but only if you take control of it. When you were in med school and working at a hospital, you saw a photo of a naked woman pinned up in the break room. How did you cope with that? Uh, you're talking about a many years ago when I was in a program that was really almost all men. And that was, you know, the, the times then were that people didn't think that that was going to be a problem. And, you know, when I was a medical student, and I happened to see it was a, was a pinup photo in what was then our call room, um, I didn't know what to do then. I knew that was the wrong thing, and I, there was nobody to turn to. There were no other women there. There was nobody to turn to and say, like, what's that all about? When I joined that program, it was clear I was going to be part of it. And I think by my presence, all those things started to, to come down, and I really didn't face those kinds of challenges there because there was that connection I had with with my peers. It's one of the reasons that you need women at the table because I think at that point it didn't dawn on them that they would put that up there. You know, they looked at me, they saw a sister, a, a you know, a partner, a wife. That's why you need more women around to sort of say, wait, this is this is not who we are. This doesn't represent that. I'm going to talk about leadership a little bit more later, but I just want to stick on this whole Me Too concept. The Me Too movement really hasn't hit the healthcare space in a big way. I'm just wondering how come. It's a great question because in every industry, we have to assume that it's um, that it's present. So I don't know the answer specifically to that. I'll tell you what we're doing at my hospital, my healthcare system. We're making the assumption that we need to talk about it. We need to make it clear that harassment of any kind is is not acceptable. So everyone's going through training, everyone through training. We're committed to a harassment-free workplace. So we'll see. We'll see what's happening for us. We'll see what's happening in healthcare. Again, the notion that we're talking about it and saying that's not acceptable in any way, I think is going to be important for medicine and for, for all other industries. You're a surgeon by training. What's your advice for handling high-pressure situations? Keep your calm. You have a right to be there. You're well-trained. You know your stuff. Take that deep breath and push forward. So I do think it's about having confidence, but also, when appropriate, asking for help. How can women be more decisive? I don't think women need to be more decisive. I think they need to know that it's fine to be decisive. So I've often been asked, you know, how do you how do you come to decisions? And I say, you know, it's not a it's not a style, but it's saying, I know my stuff, I have confidence in myself. This is the right thing to do. In some ways, not making a decision and dithering over what to do, I often say is worse. And that's maybe where surgery helped a lot. You can't just stand there in surgery. You've got to make a decision. Now, if you made the wrong decision, you may have to fix it. But you've made a decision. You've done the best under those circumstances. And now you're moving forward. What about 
people who are afraid of offending someone if they make the wrong decision? Well, that's a place where, <laughs> again, I'll, I'll grossly generalize, but uh, you can't expect that, that everyone's going to like you for every decision. And we teach boys that that's fine. We have to teach girls that that's fine, too. You're not always going to be liked. You need to do the right thing. But it may not be a popular decision. It's okay. You're going to do the right thing, not necessarily the popular thing. Coming up, Dr. Faris explains how overcoming her own health scare shaped her view of the future of medicine. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. So let's go back to this leadership idea. What do you say to people who say, like, why do we need more women leaders? Well, I think, look at the population. Let's say roughly 50% of the population is is, uh, men, 50% women. Women should be represented in leadership roles in roughly the same proportion. Now, why? what's different? It's not that women are better, but women are going to bring something different to the table. And diverse teams, teams that are made up of men and women, diverse teams of all kinds, they're going to make better decisions because at the table there will be people speaking up and saying, well, what about this? Because we don't all think the same way. That's why it matters having women in leadership. You say women need to take a long view of their careers. What do you mean by that? Well, careers are long. You don't have to get everything done in a couple of years. And careers are not one rung up the ladder every few years. You can take time. You can learn different things. You can move in different ways. And so I'm fond of saying a career is more like a jungle gym as opposed to a ladder. And you may go laterally to the side to learn something. You may move into a different area. And then you may move up. So thinking about all of those different skills is really what I've counseled a lot of young people, and particularly women, because there may be times in which you know, taking a, a maternity leave is a perfect example. You can take that time and then come back into the workforce and move into a different place, knowing that there are many other opportunities. And so sometimes people feel so rushed, I've got to get this all done tomorrow. And that's where I come back to careers are long. So think about this idea that you have lots of opportunities. What's your advice for people who want a career at the same organization for a long time? Well, you got to keep looking for the opportunity. So let me start with you want to make sure that wherever you're working, that it's an organization you believe in. All right. So that's the first piece of this. And assuming that it is, you want to keep learning and keep demonstrating that you're bringing value to that organization. And I think there are so many different ways to do that. But even when you're in the same job, one of the things I'm constantly talking to people about is saying, where are there opportunities? What what are you missing? And whether you're going to stay in that organization or you're going to move somewhere else, 
you have to think about your own career. No one's ever going to think about your career in the same way that you are. You have to take charge of those opportunities. So real focus on learning, both for yourself, but also for your organization. What's your advice for women who have a higher profile career than their husbands? Advice for women? No, I'd say it's advice for men, which is to say, how great is that? That you have a wonderful partner who together you can really be proud of each other. So I'd say for women, be proud of that. For men, be proud of that opportunity. Should women downplay at all their success? Absolutely not. Why, we would never say that to a man. Why would we say something like that to a woman? If that's threatening to someone, then you're with the wrong person. How do we get more women in the STEM fields? STEM. We got to start talking to girls about this from the time that they are little. Part of it is that it's still a stereotype where we say to boys, isn't that great? You can, be, you can be a rocket scientist. We should be saying the exact same thing to girls. Now, she may not be a rocket scientist, but the little boy might not be either. We need to plant that seed even when we're giving toys to kids. Now, girls and boys, they may play differently, but I was looking at something a few weeks ago with uh, Legos, which I think are the most wonderful toy. We should be giving Legos to, to all of our girls. And the Legos themselves should, in the same way that there are boy characters in those that are the scientists or the pilots, they should just lo- look just like that for girls so that you prime girls to say, hey, I could do that. And then it continues on through high school and into college. I mean, it's very clear that we're going to need a lot more data scientists. We should be saying to girls, you got to learn to code. Even if you're not going to do that as a job, that's going to be a valuable skill. But we've got to be deliberate about it. More companies are encouraging employees to go do online doctor visits. How do you see technology changing healthcare? Well, I think we're going to be able to change the way we're receiving healthcare. So at New York Presbyterian, we've got a fabulous set of programs that we're trying specifically to make it more convenient for you, the patient. So let me give you an example. You've had a surgery, and now you need to come back and see the doctor. But as you know, it may not be that the doctor has to physically put her hands on you. It may just be, how are you doing? Anything we should know about? Let me just talk to you, make sure all is well. What if we can say to you, you just stay home and do that, and when the doctor is between surgical operations back at the hospital, she'll get in and and talk with you right there. That could take 10 minutes, and maybe you need to just have your medications reviewed, and we can get the pharmacist to do that, who can also be remotely. You didn't have to leave home. It was easy for you. Your family member doesn't have to take time off from work. Now get to the hospital, and you don't have to sit there waiting for the doctor between surgeries. That's just convenient medicine. But here's another way that we can start to think about that. You can get on and check in and do something, whether from your screen at home, maybe in a kiosk, 
at a pharmacy, um, maybe in some place that's convenient, maybe at school for a kid who can have a school-based clinic. We can do so many different things remotely. We can even monitor you from home. So the idea is to keep you out of the doctor's office, out of the hospital, until you really need to be there, and then we can connect the dots in that way. What's the best advice you can give a caregiver who's dealing with a medical emergency of a loved one? Oh, medical emergency. Look, you need to immediately sort out what's going on. So like if it's an emergency situation, it's 911 to get that advice. But here too, there may be an opportunity to connect on a screen to say, I don't know what's going on. Now, what should I be looking for? How should I connect? Then you can either be reassured that staying home is fine for your loved one, or else understand that you need to get to a next level of care. I do also want to say about caregivers that particularly caregivers who are dealing with chronic situations, and in this case, it's it's often a, a woman who is got elderly parents or may have children, it's important for the caregiver to take care of herself or himself, as the case may be, because you are so important to that other person, but a lot of times caregivers tend to neglect themselves. What's the two best pieces of advice medically you could give to a woman who just said, you know, I would like some just general guidance of what I should be doing? Well, let's start with you need, you need a great doctor a doctor that you have a relationship with who can give you guidance about whether it's something that's that's happening or some prevention. So everyone should have a doctor. And then I think it's also, again, knowing your own body. No one's going to know your body the way you do, so being tuned into it and making sure that your doctor or anyone else who's caring for you is listening to what you have to say. What's the best personal finance advice you ever heard? So I'll flip that a little bit and say, uh, wealth is important, but health is more important. And as a doctor, I've always taken that to heart. So all the money in the world doesn't matter if your health is not there. And I think that's an important tip for everyone. Time now for your secrets. I'm Dr. Laura Faris, Chief Operating Officer of New York Presbyterian. My money secret is the best investment you can make is in your own education for the long term of your career. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. And be on the lookout for our upcoming ebook based on the Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.